Please be seated. And uh, if you could uh, make sure you have a Bible open at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. That was page 1174 and 1175 in the church Bibles. That would be fantastic. You know, Paul's letter to the Ephesians has sometimes been referred to as the Switzerland of the New Testament, and for very good reason, because in this great epistle, we're among the alpine heights of Christian truth and experience. Now, if you happen to have at home, as I have, a map of Switzerland, it might be marked up with a star system that identifies certain places, mountains, glaciers, towns and villages as worth a detour, worth going out of your way to visit. Now here in Ephesians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 13, we accompany Paul on a short but very worthwhile detour. If you'll just look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul begins by saying, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you you Gentiles. And that dash uh, is there. And then do you see how in verse 14 he then picks up what we presume he was about to do, which is to offer prayer. He picks up those very words, For this reason... And then he starts to go into prayer. I kneel before the Father, and so on and so forth. So what we have between verse 1 and verse 14 is a detour, something which I imagine Paul had not pre-planned that he would say or dictate or write at all. It's as though, as he mentions for the first time since chapter 1 and verse 1, his own name and the fact that he's a prisoner He just thinks about that situation. He's a prisoner in Rome, and he thinks to himself, I'm not actually a prisoner of the Romans. I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Christ's servant. And for the sake of my ministry, for the sake of you Gentiles. And at that thought, Paul is prompted to go off on this detour. It's as though he hears the clink of his chains and thinks, yes, I'm in prison. Yes, I'm in prison for the sake of other people, but it's a wonderful reason, a wonderful privilege that I've been been given that actually brought me into prison, brought me into imprisonment. And so, therefore, he goes off on this detour. And uh, for me, uh, a climax of this very great uh, section, verses 1 to 13, uh, can be found where Paul says in verse 8 that he has been given the privilege of proclaiming to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable, you can't get over them or round them or below them but not unknowable. Otherwise, Paul would have nothing to say about them and nothing to declare about them. In fact, I would like taking this as my headline uh, this evening, the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
I would like to share with you four things about these riches that I find in this passage. Here's the first one. Number one, in Christ, an age-old mystery has been revealed. In Christ, an age-old mystery has been revealed. Look with me at verses 4 and 5, where Paul refers to the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets, of whom, of course, he is one, and specifically the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, whenever Paul speaks of a mystery, he's not speaking of something esoteric or vague or completely unknowable. He's speaking, if he's speaking of a secret at all, he's speaking of what has become now an open secret. Because in Christ, an age-old mystery has now been revealed. Now, of course, we know that there have been glimpses, a number of glimpses in the Old Testament of a divine plan that extended far beyond the Jewish nation, a plan that would encompass eventually all nations. I go back time and time again in my uh, thinking about the the storyline of the Bible to that promise that God gave to Abraham, recorded in a variety of ways, but including in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, where God, where the Lord says to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And that promise that all nations would be uh, uh, blessed through the descendants of, of Abraham was never quite forgotten. Certainly not forgotten by some of the writers of the Psalms. Read Psalm 22, for example. And certainly not forgotten by the prophet Isaiah, who's already had um, uh, a mention with those beautiful feet uh, earlier in our service uh, this evening. Uh, Isaiah chapter 2 and other places too, will speak of God's uh, message, God's good news for the whole earth, for all nations, for the islands, the far-flung islands of the sea. But you know, the worldwide scope of God's plan was not fully revealed even during the days of our Lord's flesh. Do you remember how when a Canaanite, so therefore a Gentile woman, came to Jesus and pleaded with Jesus to help her daughter? And Jesus replied to her, I think with a twinkle in his eye, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. I think he had a twinkle in his eye when he said that. But she had a twinkle in her eye when she replied, yes, Lord. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And our Lord Jesus found that reply to be full of faith, full of insight. And so he did help that woman, that Gentile woman, and her daughter. But not before he had first said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. So here is one reason then the fact that the worldwide scope of the Christian gospel was not fully revealed even in the days of our Lord's flesh. Here was one reason why uh, Jesus declared in John chapter 16 and verse 12 and following to his disciples, I have much more to say to you, more than you can, uh, can bear now. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And so we might ask, what truth exactly did the spirit of truth guide Paul and the other apostles into? Well, it was a number of things, but the thing that Paul lands on in this passage is this. So I'm now going to move on to my second point. My first was this, that in Christ an age-old mystery has now been fully revealed. But my second point is to, uh, is to declare with Paul um, what truth, the spirit of truth, has guided Paul into. And it's this, that in Christ a new society has been created. In Christ a new society has been created. Verse 6, this mystery, writes Paul, is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the open secret that Paul is now so thrilled about. He's saying that Gentiles and Jews are fellow heirs of the same inheritance. They are fellow members of the same body and fellow partakers in the same promise. Jews and Gentiles, those two highly disparate groups of people, as it were, the insiders and the outsiders, brought together in a new society, a new humanity. For in Christ, God has created a single new humanity. Just reviewing more generally the teaching of Ephesians on God's new society, God's new humanity, Ephesians teaches us that they they are, or we are, a building with Christ as the cornerstone. This is chapter 2 and verse 20 and following. And buildings, uh, amongst other things, are lasting. Our union with Christ is a lasting union. But secondly, Ephesians teaches us uh, that... uh, that God's new society is a body with Christ as the head. This is Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22 and following. Now a body uh, with a, a living head is a living union. And then thirdly, uh, Paul will go on to teach that the people of God, God's new society, form a bride with Christ as the bridegroom. That's chapter 5 and verse 32, making it into a loving union. So Paul is absolutely gobsmacked, absolutely thrilled by what God has done. I suppose it's no wonder that he is so amazed because he had been such a rigid, such a strict Jew and such a hater of the gospel and the Christian message and the Christians, murderous his attitude had been, that for God in Christ to reveal himself to him and then for him to have the privilege of being a minister of this truth, this gospel, was to him a wonderful truth that he could never get over. So then, in Christ, an age-old mystery has been revealed, that God's plan is for all nations. Secondly, in Christ, a new society has been created, a building, a body, a bride. But now, thirdly, we ask, what is the purpose of God's new society? And my answer from this passage is as follows. In Christ, an amazing spectacle 
has been put on display. In Christ, an amazing spectacle has been put on display. Now, I said at the beginning that Ephesians is a letter of alpine proportions, but in fact, that was a serious understatement. In fact, Ephesians is a letter of cosmic proportions with regard to the truth that it teaches. Have a look with me at verse 10. God's intent was that now, through the church, through this new society of God, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This manifold wisdom of God in the gospel in Christ should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places through the church. Let us ponder for a moment a question. What is the church for? What kind of different answers could we give to the question, what's the purpose of the church? Raising money through jumble sales? Keeping ancient buildings open? Maintaining certain musical traditions? Reaching out to those who need? Preaching the gospel? Worldwide mission? Worship? Well, most, perhaps all of those possible answers to the question, what's the church for, are true and honourable. But Paul gives a possibly very surprising answer to our question here in verse 10. The church exists, says Paul, in order to make known to the angels... That's what he means by the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, in order to make known to the angels the manifold wisdom of God. And that is through the church. Now think about it for a moment. The angels had seen and heard many wonderful things. Angels were there when God first said, let there be light, and bang, there was light for the first time. Angels had praised God when he sent his son to be born in Bethlehem's manger, and the shepherds heard. Angels had sent one of their number to minister to Jesus as he agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane. Twelve legions of angels would have willingly come down and rescued Jesus from the horror of crucifixion, he said. But the angels, powerful holy and intelligent as they are, never saw this coming. As though God is saying to them, look what I just did. And they are amazed. They stand amazed when they see what God in his wisdom has achieved in Christ through the church. Life through death. Glory through shame. Blessing through curse. Power through weakness. Who would have thought it? No angel would have imagined that God would do that. Think how foolish, how weak, how irrelevant, how hopelessly out of touch the Christian church is often thought to be today. And then reflect on what Paul says here, that it is in the church, chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, sanctified by the Spirit, that there is revealed to the wondering gaze of the angels, the multicoloured, 
the many-splendid, the manifold wisdom of God in Christ. And this, you know, was no afterthought. God had had it in his plan all along. Do you see in verse 11? According to God's eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what do we have so far? We have that in Christ, an age-old mystery has been revealed. In Christ, a new society has been created. In Christ, an amazing spectacle has been put on display. But we might ask, what's in it for us? What do we kind of get out of this? Well, here's my fourth and last point. In Christ, a wonderful privilege is offered. The question, the problem of all questions, of all problems facing the human race, facing any individual human being, is this. How can I, as a guilty sinner, find access to a holy God? Despairing Job cries out, if only I knew where to find him. Sceptical Richard Dawkins surmises, there's almost certainly no God. But both despair and scepticism are answered here. Verse 12. In him, in Christ, and through faith in Christ, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. We come offering nothing but our need and our trust, and we receive in return Christ in all his fullness with all his unsearchable riches. Two points in conclusion. Friends, let us claim these riches gladly. Every year, tens of millions of pounds in prize money goes unclaimed from the National Lottery. I would surmise that those who don't claim their money is probably happier for not having that awful terrible amount of money to have to think what to do with. But Paul knew that he was a beneficiary of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And he knew what a difference this had made to his life. This religious zealot had been turned into a follower of Jesus Christ. This blasphemer into a saint. This Pharisee into an apostle. This persecutor into a missionary. And all this by the mighty working of God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. No matter who you are or what you have done, you too can be transformed. If God can take a Paul and transform him, he can transform, he can change anyone. Let's claim those riches gladly. And then secondly, let's share these riches generously. Someone once said to those who claim to follow Christ, if one-tenth of what you believe is true, you ought to be ten times as excited as you are. And certainly Paul didn't keep it to himself. He was thrilled to have been given the privilege of proclaiming these unsearchable riches of Christ. So thrilled, in fact, that to be a prisoner in chains was to him a small price to pay. What would we, what would you, what would I 
be willing to give or to give up in order to share these unsearchable riches with others. And now Paul has reached the end of his diversion and he will use that great privilege of access to God to bring prayer and that's for next Sunday evening. Now he says, says Paul, I'm ready to pray. And so am I. Let us pray. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Heavenly Father, reign in our hearts, reign in this church, and through your worldwide gospel of good news, reign in this poor, dark world. Whether you send us here to minister amongst your people and to minister in and to serve in this city of Norwich and this county of Norfolk, whether like Rachel, you make us prepared and available to go to the tundra, to Uganda or to darker Scotland. Lord, may we be willing First, to know what we have received at your hand and that share it gladly and generously. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.